This episode of the Blackstick Global Podcast is sponsored by Blackstick Global Passport. Join aspiring Black expats, expats, and repats, where you can build community, get resources, and gain support along your journey abroad. You're invited to join Blackstick Global Passport. Inside Passport, you'll find exclusive workshops on everything from expat taxes, financial planning, insurance, job boards, accountability check-ins, and more more. You can even take Passport on the go with our app available for iOS and Android devices. Just click the link in the episode you're listening to or visit blacksitglobal.com and click on Passport. See you inside. Close your eyes and imagine living a life you love, unapologetic and unbothered, free from daily microaggressions from Karens and Kens, Free from the fear of police brutality and systemic racism. Wouldn't that feel amazing? Now open your eyes. What if I told you that it's possible? Hear inspiring stories and get the actual blueprints from brothers and sisters of the diaspora who are living out their wildest dreams abroad. You've heard the term, now be inspired by the movement. I'm Krishan Wright, and this is Blacksit Global. Welcome to Blacksit Global. I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Julie Ann Russo, who is fresh off of her Blacksit and made the relocation from New Jersey to the mountains of Italy. And she is joining me today on Blacksit Global. Welcome to Blacksit Global, Julianne. Thank you so much for having me, Chrisanne. This is This is really exciting to be able to share my story. Yes, and I'm so excited. We're recording this in late August. By the time this airs, you will have been settled in a few weeks. You know, you just made that leap a little over a week ago. So how does that feel? I'm still coming off of the surrealness of it. Like, I, it's st- I still can't even, like, imagine that we're actually here. I'm, like, slowly pinching myself. Um, I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to talk about that day of. What was that day like when you guys said, okay, we're heading to the airport and this is it? I'll backtrack even further to the day when I said, this is it from me. (laughs) (laughs) Because there are two of us in this story, my husband and I, and he's Italian, but yet I'm the one like, let's go. (laughs) So for me, it was the day when the borders closed. I mean, it it was already... Very surreal and sad knowing that we were on the lockdown. And for me, it was like, this is, this is terrible. We, we are not near any family. We are by ourselves. Our families are, you know, in different places. His family is in Italy and they were already experiencing the tragedy before we, it got to us. And we were like, we really shouldn't be here. And then when the borders closed and I go home as regularly as I can, I'm from Jamaica and whenever I can, I fly back home and we've actually been flying every summer either to Italy, to Jamaica. I was like, we can't go anywhere. We're trapped. That feeling of being trapped. It was just the most surreal experience. So for me, that was the day where we're like, as soon as we're able to, this is the time that we need to get out because we don't know what the next few months are. It's it's just been so bizarre where we can't even plan. We can't plan the next six months or the next year. We don't know. So I just said, you know what? 
we planned for Alex to go to school in September. And so we had, you know, I think at least four or five months to really do it properly. So the day we were leaving for the airport, I was so tired. I was so numb. I couldn't feel anything. There was like no excitement. I had this auto body experience, like we're leaving in a pandemic. It's a very surreal time. I don't even know what word to call it because we couldn't really have a goodbye party. It was not the way that we ever envisioned leaving. We couldn't invite our friends or have this party. We were trying to like keep to ourselves sort of so that we wouldn't get sick, you know, uh, before we left. My idea was like, we're not getting sick before we get on this plane. <laughs> so we need to leave. So we limited again ourselves to who we saw. So we only saw like maybe four people before we left, um, a handful. And then um, just getting to the airport, you know, all that packing and trying to box things so quickly, it, it was really exhausting. So the day, ground zero, I called it, the day of, I, I was like numb. <laughs> I had no idea. We just got to the airport. <laughs> I bet. And so you talked about your son, Alex. I know you are from Jamaica. You said your husband's from Italy. I'm assuming your son was born in the States. What are his feelings about the change? Because I'm sure he might have come at it and feel a different way because this is the home he's only known, whereas you and your husband have had two different experiences. Did he ever share anything on that day? Any reservations or just excitement? He was truly excited because honestly, um, we had been planning to leave uh, probably the next two or three years. School for him was not enjoyable. Um, we had tried different schools and I just, we just thought the education system uh, where we lived was just not the best for him. He's a very smart child that's also very musical. He plays the violin, he's very artistic and creative. And none of the schools really catered to his ability, I thought. So we had start, and also he, he would experience bullying. So we had started experiencing that in the uh, second and third grade. So um, I ended up homeschooling him before COVID uh, started because he, he just didn't want to go back to school. So we were already experiencing that, which had, you know, it was slowly coming that we couldn't keep him here. So we had started taking him to Jamaica. He spent uh, two summers ago in Jamaica and he just loved it. I mean, he the, the kids really catered to him. And then he loved coming to Italy because when we're, when we're here in the mountains, it's a farm, farming community. It's very simple. And it's also the home of horse riding. So this is where the Italian cowboys live, the Buteri. So wow. he had the opportunity to ride and he just loved it. This is this he felt very at home with. So he had those experiences. So we call him a global child. That's the thing about being a first generation. You're not quite American because you're so infused with your parents' cultures. And we made sure that he knew our cultures. So he actually was very excited to leave. He was like, because it's an age also where he hadn't really, he has a few friends, but he didn't bond as much. I think if we had left later, perhaps when he was like 14, 15, it would have been more difficult those high school years. 
But I think in hindsight, this was the best year because he was he's going into sixth grade and every sixth grade, you always start off new anyway. So he was really excited for this whole new world that we were offering him. So he couldn't wait. So we were like so pleased about that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that made the whole process much easier, you know, for you and for him. And it sounds like you and your husband have been very attuned to his needs and understanding from not only an educational perspective, but also psychologically. You know, you talked about him encountering bullying, you know, not being challenged academically to, you know, his level of capability. You know, you've been his best advocate, you and your husband. So, you know, kudos to you for recognizing that this was not the right environment for him and for him to have that self agency, you know, at such a young age to say, you know what, I'm all for it. Let's do this. (laughs) So I'm delighted. Going back to the day that you guys left, when you got to the airport, and I know you talked about, you know, this feeling of of numbness. Talk a little bit about protocol. Were there um, people at the airport that were swabbing you for the flight? You know, I'm sure that, you know, you had to wear masks and you had probably had a few layovers on your way from New Jersey to Italy. But how was that COVID protocol? So what kind of made us comfortable about flying anyway was um, I, I don't think I would have felt this comfortable to say, May, because the numbers in New Jersey were already down. The fact that American citizens were not able to fly. So we kind of figured already that there were going to be less people at the airport. The airline that we were flying required us to do a test. So we're like, oh, this is good. People are getting on a plane that are supposed to be negative. We did the test two days before we left. Then at the airport, I would say most people wore masks. We saw one or two people without masks. However, there was no social distancing, which is just incredible, right? And we have always heard this in America, the protocols at the airport are not as strict as other places. So, you know, we just tried to distance ourselves. But at this point, we knew that we were negative and we just kept our masks on the whole time using the hand sanitizers. The security, the line was really long, but that was just because there are less uh, people at the counter. But once we got through security really fast, and we got on the plane really fast and there was, it was not a packed plane. So we were able to have enough space between passengers. So we felt really comfortable about the experience and the flight was really, really nice. It was like five hour flight to Portugal. Once we got to Portugal, they did our temperature check. Actually, nothing else. We thought, we thought we're like, uh, wow, we, you know, they didn't question anything. <laughs> <We're> like, okay. <laughs> you would think that with being flying in the midst of a pandemic, going from country to country, that there'd be even more stringent protocols. So I guess you guys were like, okay, let's wait for it, wait for it. We are at that window in which it's not that bad compared to even May or June, right? So I think people were relaxed a bit. And I think that's why we were able to uh, get through so easily. So I think it's just the timing. We'll be right back. Are you a Caribbean American? Are you looking for a podcast that truly speaks to your culture and identity? Look no further than Carry On Friends, the ultimate destination for all things Caribbean American. Hosted by me, Carrie Ann. Dive deep into topics such as culture, heritage, and everyday life 
through the unique lens of the Caribbean American experience. You'll walk away feeling more connected to your roots. Follow and listen on Apple Podcasts so you'll never miss an episode of Carry On Friends, the Caribbean American experience. Your Caribbean American community awaits. Pre-March, there was a lot of news about the pandemic and how it was taking over Italy. Was there any reservation about making the move or has the numbers in the area where you are declined? There was no reservation for me. I mean, just because of the way things are in America where it's so confusing and the news is so conflicting and there doesn't seem to be a unified way of controlling the pandemic. I just knew that that wasn't a place for me. I wanted to go to a place where everyone was on the same page and common sense was, you know, number one. As a scientist, it's just bizarre to me, everything that I'm hearing. Sometimes I feel like, is it just me? <laughs> because it's not rocket science. They have told you how to control it. And these are the steps that you take to control it. And that's what we need to get done. It's being done other places. So I needed to go to a place that was actually doing this. In Rome, the numbers have gone down significantly. I don't know the statistics exactly, but I know where we are. It's a village. There's none. Because it's a village, everybody is related somehow or it's a community. Everyone's really careful. And so everyone looks out for each other. Believe me, we can't escape this quarantine. They know who we are. <laughs> you know, we, we can't even step out. It's that kind of situation where everyone cares about everybody. And I wanted to be in that kind of situation. So God forbid if there was to be such a, a thing again, even if it did happen, I'm in a community that cares and knows what to do or what needs to get done to protect everybody. So no, there wasn't no reservation. That's great. I would imagine I'm going to take a leap here that there are probably some similarities in that feeling and sense of belonging and community that you're finding where you currently are and maybe seeing a parallel to your upbringing in Jamaica. Can you talk a little bit about that part? Yeah, absolutely. And it's a sense of deja vu. I don't know if you've ever been to a place when it just feels like home. The mountains, the sea, the people. Although I went to school in Kingston, the capital, I worked on a farm. So my background is in agriculture and, and fisheries. And I spent several years on a farm and, and my parents had a farm. And that farming community, you will always find that sort of village setting where people are looking out for each other. I mean, I, I was never out of food. Uh, you know, someone's always bringing me a mango or, or something. And two days ago, the neighbor, he doesn't know us. He dropped off a bunch of uh, veggies for us, melon and tomatoes and stuff like that. And this is just like home. <laughs> Wow, that is so thoughtful. And you guys have only been there like, what, you're coming into a week? Oh my gosh. And you're on quarantine. Like you said, it's such a small village. Everybody knows yeah. that new people and that you're in quarantine yet, you know, that hasn't stopped them or prevented them from acknowledging your presence and really making you feel welcome. So that's phenomenal. Right. It's exactly. That's, that's exactly the feeling that when I was looking, you know, when I wanted to come here because 
it feels like home. It feels um, it's it's a different place, different language, different people. But that sense of feeling is is what really drew me to this you know area, basically. And so when you came from Jamaica to the States, I'm assuming that you came pursuing your doctoral degree. Right. So is that where you met your husband? We met in graduate school. <laughs> He's from Italy. You're from Jamaica. You guys meet in the U.S. How did you all navigate that? You know, has, was that ever like a topic of conversation? I imagine it would be for you in Jamaica being in an environment that you are seeing people that look like you every day and then coming to America and being in a very different environment, particularly with respect to race. When I met him, previous to that, my dream job was always to work in Italy. I don't know if it's serendipity or something. We didn't really start dating till a year after we met each other. I always thought, we're going to go to Italy. <laughs> All right? I'm like, yes. Oh, this is fantastic. I've always wanted to live there. Now we're going to go. <laughs> but he stayed. And he will always tell you that um, Romans, he's from Rome, do not leave Rome. And that's so true because none of his friends, maybe possibly one, that's gone to Spain, but he's the only one that ever came to America. So he, you know, we stayed probably because of the whole job. There were no jobs in Europe at the time and the whole economic situation. And, you know, our careers were just starting out in, um, in our different fields. And so being in, you know, the start of our career and trying to, uh, build our whole you know, career around that. We, we just didn't see how it was possible economically to move to Italy, which didn't have, you know, the kind of things that we enjoy doing. So, but as the years went on, you know, when we met, we did not see color in each other. We have a lot of similarities because of our education, our background, our interests are so similar. We didn't speak the same language and we probably didn't for a long time. <laughs> because sometimes I didn't understand him because his accent was so thick. Oh my goodness. <laughs> but we had so much in common that, you know, we really just clicked for each other. But in grad school, we started to see the whole racism come up. We didn't have a name for it. Because I've never experienced it. And he and racism for him is completely off the radar. I mean, that's just not something that has, is in his realm. Whereas, although I kind of knew about it, I never experienced it. But we started to experience it in grad school. And I think it took about 10 years for us to really fully understand the different things that were happening, that, you know, situations that would happen to say, Yes, this really is racism. I would get it a lot and he would be a subject of it because of me. Because we didn't have any, I don't know, mentors or people around us that I could really look up to or ask in my career. It was something that was extremely hard to navigate and it caused conflict for us because we did not know how to uh figure out what was going on. Was it just me that it was happening to? And so it took a really long time for us to figure out this whole racism and discrimination that we, I felt mostly. COVID broke open the whole uh, Pandora's box and let it out. And finally, you know, he, he could see 
um, oh yeah, it really, it wasn't just you. It it's really was happening because I was so isolated in my field as a scientist. I was the only one that, you know, in any of my, between my PhD and um, my postdoc and also in my career, I was always the only one, the only scientist or only one at the conference, the only one at the board table. So it's like, who do I go to to tell them when I'm feeling certain discrimin- you know, discrimination practices? It really enlightened us. That, that was uh, one of the silver linings of COVID for us to understand that this is really not the country for us. We really cannot survive in this kind of environment. We were born to not just survive, but to thrive. And right. it's clear that you both recognize that this was not the right environment. Racism is so insidious It is not just what you encounter, but understanding that it's an entire, at least in the United States, an entire system that is built to cultivate and preserve its existence. And this has gone on for hundreds of years. You know, now we're at this point in our lifetime where it has reached a tipping point. One of the things that is also insidious about racism is that it does so much psychological damage that you start to second guess yourself. The constant internal dialogue and replay and that many people have encountered and definitely in your field, as you mentioned, being a black woman, a scientist in a field where you know, you're underrepresented that had to play a lot in your day-to-day living. That was what was happening to me. And just by not being able to discuss it with anyone. When I came to the States, although I kind of knew, I think most immigrants that come here you're coming for an opportunity, in many cases, an economic opportunity that I couldn't get uh, living on a small island. The resources are, are not there. So I love my country, but, you know, that and Jamaicans have been migrating for, for years to get economic opportunities. And we're here to work really hard, um, block out whatever else is happening, because that's what they tell us. It's like, don't don't complain. Just work hard. Just do it and get out. Don't complain. So for years, you would just suppress whatever it is just to get your degree, right? Because if you if you speak out, in many cases, I did try to speak out. But if you speak out, you're penalized for it. So either way, you're penalized. Either you're going to suffer if you speak out. Will you get your job? Will you get your degree? So for so many people, it's just keep silent. That's what perpetuates the behavior. We don't have a platform to tell anyone. Otherwise, you are isolated and alienated as being the problem. For 10 years, I think I just forged on. But with each year, it knocks your confidence down. Because if you're constantly fighting, I came with a lot of confidence. I used to like surprise my professors. They would stare at me like, who's this person? I don't know what their idea was of a black person coming from an island or, you know, other than maybe what they assume is a black person should be doing. Because honestly, when I looked around, other people of color were janitors or bus drivers. There were no scientists. And so Mm. for them, I don't know what their perception was, but I grew up where my classmates were always told as women that we could do anything. 
we were smart, we were bright, we could do anything as long as you work hard. To me, I was not the exception. <laughs> I was like, no, this is what I, this is just normal for me, but it was an exception for them. And so it was mind blowing, I think, half the time. And I just couldn't relate. And so it was always an education. I'm always explaining. I'm like, no, we do go to school. It becomes exhausting. And like you said, it's a confidence killer in a lot of ways, because like you said, you have to continually re-educate and educate people. You're trying to move in your career in advance, but still also trying to wrestle with those feelings of, is this happening? Am I being slighted? Am I being marginalized? If I speak up, am I going to put my job in jeopardy or any advancements that I have or aspiration toward advancements in my career? And then there's this whole other piece that I think comes along with that, depending on where you are in your career, is, you know, a lot of times when you separate from your employer, especially, you know, downsizing, you have to sign a severance agreement that, you know, kind of prohibits you in a lot of ways from even bringing suit or talking about anything that you may have encountered. And so I think all of these things facilitate these toxic environments, toxic environments in the workplace or bringing that toxicity into your home environment, it becomes destructive. I think for me, all of the people who are so courageous like yourself, speaking out and bringing light and elevating these stories, it really makes me take a step back and think how much America is missing out with their Black talent because they're so fixated on assumptions and supporting stereotypes rather than identify that we are all individuals. We are not a monolith. Aspirations and dreams and come from families that put a lot of emphasis on education and hard work. Those are the values that this country built itself on. Those have passed to us, but then yet we encounter and continue to encounter roadblocks. And when you try to reach a certain point, the mark moves. That's the part that I feel is the the tension point right now, particularly as you think about, you know, whether it's Blacksit, the Black Flight, key high performing talent saying, yeah, you know what? That's okay. I'm out. <laughs> you know, you, you can have this. <laughs> like, right. you know, you've worked too hard. You studied. You have your doctorate. And if that can't be acknowledged and recognized and valued and appreciated, you can do other things. You're not limited. And so that's what I love so much about your story is that you've been able to recognize for yourself that there is more to this life, and you and your family, your husband, your son can pursue those things. And then that's how I found entrepreneurship. It was very depressing and quite sad to know that for some time I couldn't practice what I went to school for. It took me a while to really navigate how could I use it. I would just do research and sit at the computer wondering what next. But I knew I couldn't be in academia and I knew I couldn't be in uh, corporate. I, I hit the ceiling in corporate and it was just a fight trying to get any further. And I knew I wasn't going to get any further. I think, you know, I needed a mentor. There needed to be something, somebody that could help me to get to the next level. And I couldn't navigate that as an immigrant, as a black woman. I couldn't navigate that without understanding the culture because I really didn't understand the culture. Eventually, I found entrepreneurship and that opened the doors for me. I mean, that was amazing. I started my own company where I met so many women that taught me things. 
about networking and find your tribe and find people who are like you. And I'm a very creative person because that was my job. I used, I was in innovation. I was in R&D and I used to create all the products and do all the formulas. So I'm a very creative in that sense. So being able to open the doors to that was amazing for me. And then I found where if I couldn't work in my field, I would volunteer the skills. Mm. So I ended up working with USAID and some other NGOs like Winrock International that would pay for me to travel. So I started traveling to other countries and working my skills with fish farmers and fish farming to help them on their farm. And that was just like, oh, my God, this is what I really want to do. I don't want to be stuck in an office. (laughs) I don't need to be fighting with anyone. (laughs) They appreciate my skills. It was just the most amazing feeling to be able to go into these villages And then, of course, I was always the only black person. They always thought I was from Africa. So I'm like, no, (laughs) I'm not from Africa. So to educate them about Jamaica and about just everything and and teach women who weren't very educated, it opened the doors for me and, and it really rebuilt my confidence to know there are how many billion people in the world. I don't need to be stuck in this environment, which doesn't appreciate what I have to offer. I can go out into the world and exist in the world. In hindsight, don't stick to one thing. You have to be able to keep your mind open to what else, what's next. I mean, we live such a long life nowadays, hopefully if we keep healthy enough, that you don't have to like, you always thought you were going to be one thing. You don't have to be one thing. I learned I could be many things. Yes. And that's the gift is really finding that purpose and passion and and that unlock living your life in HD. You're living a high definition life. I know you have really found your passion with the culinary art and having that as a creative outlet, which coming from a scientific background, it sounds like the perfect blend of <laughs> you know very cerebral self and then your creativity. So can you talk a little bit about how you went on that journey? I always loved cooking in Jamaica, which is it has its own culinary background as it is. Growing up during the time of the 80s, there was a lot of political strife. And related to that, we always ended up not having a lot of food on the shelves. So we'd end up eating canned food, which to this day, I absolutely hate. <laughs> I would just dream about what can I cook? So when I came to America and I saw the lavishness of food, <laughs> I was like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I started collecting cookbooks because that was always my dream to look at all these different dishes that I could now prepare. And and it is an art. I mean, like cooking, I love art. I love, you know, any kind of creativity and so cooking is an art in that sense that's how I saw it and just having the all of these ingredients I I started like doing my own thing you know at grad school I had a group of students international students because that's that's what I was at the time Mm -hmm. Um, and we get together from all over the world And we'd share our different dishes with each other. So we'd cook in the evenings. And so, you know, somebody from Spain, a paella, France, or, you know, Pakistan, and they loved my my curry, right? (laughs) (laughs) Because then you see how similar some of the, the foods are. It's what brings people together. 
So when Ricardo came along, when I when I met him, I'm like, oh, you need to join my group. <laughs> so, so I learned, he cooked really well. Really? So, yes. But I hope so. Being from Rome. <laughs> <be> like, <laughs> you know, so he was he was cooking for us and in my book, I write about he he started out cooking for the group and then he ended up cooking for one. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> so we, you know, just I would like get the recipes together from the cookbooks, and then you know, for him it's just natural. For me, I'm learning out of a cookbook recipes, and he would look at and said, "No, that's not how you do it." <laughs> <laughs> so he started to like you know show me how to uh blend pasta how to mix it all the different sauces how to cook he would actually start showing me how to do the finishing touches so for for us we started to cook a lot more together and that was just it's so fun it's for me it was you know really fun and up to this day, when we still do it, it's, I really enjoy I'm his sous chef. When I started traveling to Italy more often, how we started coming up here in the mountains was that Riccardo used to come here as a child. So he's from Rome, but his father used to come up here because he had asthma. And so he wanted to get like the doctor recommended fresh mountain air. So they would stay in the in the woods and Riccardo would stay as a family that owned a restaurant. So he started cooking with them. When I started coming up here and he introduced me to the family that owned a restaurant. So the kids are our age. The food was amazing. Like no, nothing touches it. <laughs> That's just how amazing it is. I started picking up ways of cooking from them and then from his aunt and his mom. I would ask them and write down their recipes. So over the years, it's just increased for me about cooking the way that they cook. I wanted to document it. So that's how I ended up starting writing the book. Oh, my gosh. What a great story. And I can only imagine that that book is going to fly off the shelves. (laughs) (laughs) How have you been adjusting or even with, you know, writing your book, the language? Have you been learning Italian either in your travels or is this now an opportunity for you to be more immersed in the language? I've been trying to learn Italian forever. <laughs> when, when we met, I was so excited, you know. So I went to Italian classes, studied language and everything. We've been married for over 16 years. So as life progressed, it sort of fell off because he never spoke to me in Italian. In America, there's really no way of practicing if he doesn't speak to me. I would only study before I came here. When I'm here, it comes out basically. I can help myself. I'm not fluent. Last summer, however, I stayed here for five weeks. And I think for the first time, I was able to speak fluently. My friends were like, oh, my God, you're speaking. We can finally speak to you after all these years. So I know if I'm immersed in it and they don't really speak English, they don't speak English. So I have to be immersed in it to really, it becomes my everyday language. Mm -hmm. Otherwise at this age, it's like really hard. You know, it was interesting because um, my husband would talk to um, my son when he was born. He always talked to him in Italian. And I'm like, why are you talking to the baby? But you can't talk to me. Does your son know Italian? 
I think when we really knew that he understood was when he was about six and we stayed here for about four weeks. And by the third week, he was fluent. So we're like, whoa, this is fantastic. So just by listening to him from he was born, so now he's fluent. It's not going to be as hard as an adjustment because he can uh, communicate with the children here. That was really good. I know you guys are in quarantine. Has there been any discussion or communication about school and how that'll look like in the pandemic? In the States, for example, New Jersey is doing a lot of remote learning. Do you see that model being vastly different where you are in Italy? Well, that's one of the main reasons why I wanted to come here, because they're all going back to school physically. I knew I knew that I could not do the virtual thing because it was not working for him. Virtual is really very, very hard on kids, on him as a boy. After a while, it completely tuned out. And then I would have to spend more time. Homeschooling is a whole different story because when we homeschooled, we spend about three or four hours together. And then I had time in the evening to do my work while he was at his activities. During this virtual lockdown, it's all day. So for both of us, it's extremely exhausting and I'm not able to do any kind of work. So I, you know, it becomes non-productive for me because somebody has to go to work. So that's my husband would be the one doing that and I would be the one staying at home. So I knew it wasn't going to work for either of us. So in our whole decision, we had started looking, I started looking, he needs to go to school. So that was one of the main things. So they're going to be doing school. I think the whole sixth grade is 17 kids. <laughs> That's a dream. Whatever they decide, they like I said, I trust them in knowing how to protect the kids. And I think they will be wearing masks. There will be social distancing. And if they need to, they have the ability to school outside. But right now they don't have any cases. And so they're very comfortable with each other. They know each other, how to protect the kids from, you know, if, you know, God forbid anything. So I, I, everyone here is quite comfortable. There's no discussion, no worry. School is starting. And I'm like, oh, this is fantastic. I can get to work and he can get to be with his, you know, friends. Yeah, it was, that's exactly why I wanted to come here now. <laughs> There's a lot of people, you're in the Blackset Global Facebook group that are like me, that are still here, whether it be for two and a half years or people that are actively planning to leave as other countries open up. What would be your advice to someone who's considering leaving or maybe even sitting on the fence? Get your passport. Travel. If it wasn't Italy, I was going to go somewhere else. I was looking at Singapore. I was looking for somewhere else because I just knew America was not it for me. It was not a place that I wanted to continue. And I wanted a place for my son to thrive in as well. So it was going to be Jamaica somewhere. Italy for us, for me, was this place that I just felt so at home with. It's a ready-made community for me. And that is so because we kept coming back over the years you need to travel and you need to experience what it is that would make you happy. Where is it that feels like home, that gives you that excitement that you can fit into the society? Because it's a big place. Some places are just not good, right? So you have to know what's compatible for you. And 
Italy is wonderful because the cost of living is so much cheaper. There are no jobs, so you have to come with a job or come with some, come some kind of creativity to make your own living. But the cost of living is so much cheaper. Once you become a resident, the social services, the education system, I think university costs like 2000 a year. There is no way I'd be sending my son to an American university. He has the opportunity to come back if he wants to go to grad school or some other specialty. But for an undergrad university, I just think the prices are ridiculous. And I would imagine that the visa process may be an added layer of complexity given the language. Can you talk a little bit about that process? Sure. So for me, because I'm married to an Italian, it was slightly different. Once I get out of quarantine, I'm going to go and get try to get my uh, residency. Normally, you're allowed to stay in Italy as a visitor for, I think, 90 days as an American citizen. But if you plan to stay here longer, I think you need to get a visa before arriving. So, and that visa process takes a while. So any documentation that you're planning to do for Italy, you need to get ahead of time. So to give enough space for that. And then once you arrive here, you have to go and and you have to get um, a permiso di soggiorno, which is a temporary permit. That's for three years. And then after living here for five years, you can get a permanent one. By that time, you can try to apply for citizenship. So in order to get certain things like your health card, you have to be a resident. And as a health card, then you can go to the doctors for free. You can get your citizenship. And once you do that, it's it's amazing. You, know, you do need to uh, take a test and you do need to know the basic Italian language. So I'm going to be studying up and try to really get better at my language in order to do the test. That's the basics. Here, people live much simpler. America is a highly consumer-oriented country. Credit cards is not something that's fashionable. So for me, one of the reasons why I wanted to come here was to live a more simple, sustainable lifestyle. It's not about shopping. You have all of these different, you know, like health, if you're retiring. I'm 52, so this is my retirement <laughs> You know, like future that I am creating because I want to grow old in a place where there is a community. I don't have to drive. Ricardo's parents don't have to drive. His aunt doesn't drive. You can walk to the store. You can you can be functioning in your 80s. Right. So I foresee a future like that. I'm not going to die in a nursing home. Mm -hmm. I'm not doing that. If you are looking for your future, where you know whichever stage of life that you're in, Europe is a, is a great place for social services in that sense. However, I would suggest that if a place like Italy, because it's so not old but you know ancient, it's steeped in culture, you have to get to know the people. You cannot come with American, you know, get quick get done you have to like understand the culture anywhere you go you need to understand the culture and understand the people and get to know the people they have to get to know you rome is expensive so if you're going to live outside of rome any of the villages you have to visit and you have to get to know the place 
that would be my advice is travel travel and get to to know where you feel alive exactly because i think that internal gps that we all have if you follow that it'll lead you to where you're supposed to be i want to keep following your story <laughs> and how the next chapter continues to unfold for you so how can people follow up with you and keep track of you know your book and just how you're acclimating to being in Italy. I'll have my website up so you can find me at julianroyce.com. And I'm on Instagram, um, Dr. Julian underscore Russo. And uh, Twitter. If you once you're on my website, you can follow me on all the different uh, social media. Oh, that is awesome. Well, I know I am already following you, but I'm not following you on Twitter. So I will have to follow you at jrusso 8 Seven, six. I'll be sure to put all of that in the show notes for this episode. But I have to say it is an honor and a distinct pleasure to have this opportunity to hold this space with you. It's, like I said, <laughs> not even a full week in Italy. <laughs> I really appreciate you taking the time to have a conversation as you're settling into your new environment, but I am fully confident that you and your family have made the right decision and just so excited for how this journey is going to continue to unfold for you. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Blacksit Global Podcast. For more information on today's episode, be sure to visit our website at blacksitglobal.com. Has this episode left you feeling inspired to begin your journey, but not quite sure where to start? Download our free guide with the top five questions you need to ask before planning your Blacksit. You can find that under the resources tab of our website. Remember, it's not only possible to live out your dreams unbothered and in full color, it is your birthright. Are you trying to sort out health plans, banking, VPN, and other connectivity for your move abroad? Well, have no fear. We've got you with the Move Abroad Starter Kit. Get yours today at blacksitglobal.com resources. That's blacksitglobal.com resources.